the fact that we have technology as this separate thing, where technology is about technology and humans are about humans, is arbitrary, artificial, and hindering considerations that might be important, even now with the AI. Treating the AI not just as a computer thing, but as a human thing, as an ethical thing, as a thing that has to do with nature, with what we are, having all of these considerations in the same box without a clear divide. It's never been since the computers arrived as easy to break that wall. Because right now, one of the frontiers, one of the parts of understanding what this is, lies squarely on the users that can be philosophers, historians, artists. And these are the people that are the best positioned to get that deep knowledge that we need to understand what this is and how to accept it and bring it into humanity in the best way. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Lea, and in this episode I talk to Eliel Camargo Molina, researcher at the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Uppsala University, and fellow within the Natural Sciences program here at SCAS during the academic year of 2022-2023. Eliel's research is centered around the interplay between the smallest particles we know and the vast expanse of our universe. His work attempts to answer some of the fundamental questions we have about the universe we observe, including why there is so much more matter than antimatter. Eliel has proposed innovative theories that attempt to address these gaps and even showed that the mere existence of our universe can serve as a test of the validity of some of these theories. Eliel Camago-Molina is also deeply interested in the intersection of science and art. He co-founded the Art and Science Initiative, a platform for promoting interdisciplinary collaboration between artists and scientists. He is involved in one of the first Hollywood attempts to write a film using AI and is also the co-host of the podcast Authored by AI, where he discusses the challenges and possibilities of integrating artificial intelligence with storytelling and the creative process. This is the first episode in our new theme AI. Join us as we explore this topic and the fascinating interdisciplinary approaches that Eliel Camagumolina brings to his work. And this introduction was partly generated by AI using ChatGPT. So very welcome to SCAS Talks and the studio Eliel. Thank you very much. It's so exciting to be a part of this new theme and of this excellent podcast that we all keep paying attention to and listening. Would you like to say a few more words about yourself? Academically, my pedigree is steadfastly spot on in theoretical physics, fundamental research. I have a background in particle physics as a PhD student during the time that the Higgs boson was discovered. I'm a theorist meaning that I don't go to the lab or work with machines, but have a strong appreciation and need for what comes out of experiment to feed my works as a theorist, as part of the scientific method. So as a theoretical physicist working in phenomenology, which is the part of theoretical physics that tries to connect with experiment and experimental results, my day-to-day work in terms of the tasks that I do are mostly computer programming, software developing And this is true, not just me, but a big portion of people like me doing physics research. So that's kind of my background. And my research touches in 
what you were talking about, this connection between particle physics and everything we've learned here on Earth with particle accelerators like CERN. How can we take all that knowledge and use it to understand a whole new other aspect of nature, which is the origin of the universe, the very early universe? What happened after the Big Bang? Why does the universe look the way that it does? Why do we have more matter than antimatter? And all of those very interesting questions that I either describe them very shortly like this, or I spend three hours talking about them. So I think we take the first choice. Yeah, that's my background. But then I got relatively early access to an AI model called GPT-3, and it blew my mind. At the same time, I got my fellowship here at SCAS. And SCAS is a place that by definition is very deeply interdisciplinary. It's also part of a network of institutes like this, that each one of them has their own focus and interest in terms of who comes and themes that they explore. The one here, it's historically been focused more on the social sciences and humanities. So, for example, this year I'm the only natural sciences fellow. So I get here after having used GPT-3 with my mind blown, after having started that experiment of trying to write a film using GPT-3 and all the art science collaborations that I've had in the past. And I'm dropped into this place filled with scholars from history, literature, philosophy, ancient texts, so much interesting subjects and expertise. And suddenly I am the resident AI expert by association. I'm the closest they have to an AI expert. And by the minute myself, also getting more and more into this field. In hindsight, it's like a good timing. I'm not an artificial intelligence expert, so I don't necessarily am that person. And I am not a fundamental research person working or thinking about philosophy or history or literature that are in itself very much about exploring ideas, thinking about the origin of ideas, thoughts, questions, this kind of very deep scholarly work of thinking. But I am in theoretical physics, which borrows a little bit of both worlds. In a sense, as I said before, I'm in practice most of the time a software developer, but some of the other time I'm thinking about the origin of the universe and trying to understand interpretations of different theories, trying to understand the scientific method and how to craft mathematical theories that try to explain and answer the question of why are we here. So I think that made it easier for me to maybe dare a little bit more to explore the possibilities of everything that is happening a little bit more openly because I kind of have a foot in each world, but I'm not an expert in either, so I'm not bound by the rules. And also having access to all the people here at SCAS. They're a window to that world, a world that is going to be fundamentally changed by artificial intelligence in the next years. So how can you use AI as a tool for interdisciplinary research projects? Disclaimer number one is that nobody knows, and I'm not going to pretend I have all the, all the answers. I am in my own journey of exploring what's possible, and I have discovered a subset of very interesting applications and possibilities. Let's start by saying that, or explaining a little bit, the journey of interfacing with something like GPT-3 or GPT-4 or GPT-5 or whatever. And the journey typically starts with you going there and writing a question. Most people, most researchers, immediately ask a question related to the research. Like, we have some linguists. And when I talk to them, so what do you do? Because the first thing I tell them is, go use it. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Just go use it. So some of the linguists said, I just said, 
invent a new language or invent a new Indo-European language. And then it didn't. And then it kind of made sense. And then they kept, you know, testing until it breaks. And that's the true scientific curiosity. You know, we want to break things to understand how they work. Then after you start playing with it a little bit more, understanding what it is and going deeper, you realize that you've only seen kind of the trailer of what this is, the poster in the main door. And then when you enter, you realize that you just open up this almost infinite universe of possibilities. That sounds exciting. Do you want to expand on this a little bit? So the easiest conceptual way that I found to explain this quickly is based on a short story by Borges called The, the Library of Babel. So the short story, if you want, pause, go read it. It's not that long and then come back. But for those that are not going to do that, imagine a library with books that are around 400 pages long where the books have all of the possible combinations of all characters, letters, numbers, letters in all alphabet, everything, and all of the possible combinations. Admittedly, that's a lot of books, but it's not infinite because the books are 400 pages long. And this is a vast library where most of the books are nonsense. But because you have all of the possible combinations, you'll also find books that are not nonsense. And not only that, you'll find books that exist and that have been written. But you also will find all the books that will ever be written. So now imagine that there's this agent, superhuman agent, that read all the books of this library. And every time the book didn't sound like language, they threw it away. So you end up with this library where all the nonsensical books have been taken away and all the books that sound like language have been kept. Well, GPT, it's not exactly that because first it didn't go through the whole library. It doesn't include the whole thing, but it's a big portion of that library, but it's very close to that idea. And now when you interact with it, you're interacting with the librarian of this pruned library. So what you get, it's going to depend a lot on what you ask. So you have to very carefully think, what do I ask? And most importantly, because this is the first reaction that people have when they use these models, is like, well, I asked it to do this, and it didn't do this. So it means that the model is dumb, and it cannot do this. Because that's the way that we would think when we interact with a human. If you grab a student and you say, do this, and they fail you take points from their grade and you are immediately think that this person cannot do this. These models are not like that at all because when they cannot do something, the most likely answer is that you ask the wrong question or that you asked it in the wrong way. But in a way, I mean, both your job as a scientist and my job as a journalist is to ask a good question, right? I mean, it always starts with that, having a good question. So then this tool, the chat GPT, for me, it sounds like a great training tool to learn how to ask a good question. Oh, yeah. And not only a good question, but what it means to ask a good question in the future is going to be very different. It's kind of similar to what some people call Google Foo, you know, like Kung Fu, but for Google. How do you search for something on Google to get what you want? And that's a task that requires intuition and understanding a lot of things, which word goes first. Like you kind of know Google and you know how to ask it something so that it gives you what you want. Or now that we interact with voice with Alexa or Google Assistant, you kind of learn after a while how to ask things so you get what you want the quickest. This is like that, but multiplied in complexity by a very large number where you have to understand what to ask, how to ask it. 
But it's super fascinating because once you get this, once you go beyond the, I'm just going to go and write a question and hope it does everything, and you get into thinking and trying and tweaking your prompt and doing things, and then you get what you want, then that weird feeling that you're cheating goes away because you suddenly gain ownership of the output because you realize that the output is only possible because you found it. And that's kind of a little bit of a peak of what authorship is going to mean in the future how maybe teachers have to think about homeworks in the future. Maybe it's not do this, but it's going to be make this model do this. And then you will probably evaluate the prompt and not so much the output. So to answer your question about things that we're trying to do with these interdisciplinary collaborations, ancient texts, sometimes they are incomplete and they have a hole and you don't know what word goes there. And a lot of deep thought and expertise goes into evaluating what the possibilities are. And for that, you have to understand the time, the history, the context, other works, but also if it was, for example, ancient Greek, the Greek meter, prosody, how did they rhyme things, how did they use long vowels, short vowels, all of these things. And maybe if you're a scholar that has been doing this for decades, maybe you'll have a good suggestion for a word that might fit in that hole. When I heard about this, I was like, all right, I told to Eric Coolhead that works with that, send me a, some texts and let's try to do that. Let's try to ask GPT-3. Terrible. First, he didn't know a lot of ancient Greek. Then I have to think a lot about how to make it remember ancient Greek. And then he kind of remember ancient Greek. Ultimately, it did a poor job. Now GPT-4 comes. Okay, now let's try it with GPT-4 to see if it works. GPT-4 at this point, when we record this, it's days old since it's been public to the wider public. So we are like trying and it does a little bit better. At least now we don't have to make it remember ancient Greek and it gets maybe the context and the meaning, but doesn't really get the meter and long, short vowels. And I'm trying also to understand what that means. I mean, just repeating words. I don't really, I'm not an expert in this. So then the thing is that with short and long vowels, it turns out you're doing it as a human. You have to go find a book with a dictionary and remember. And we haven't been able to make it do this yet. I think it's totally possible. I think we just need to ask a better question. But, you know, other people might not be so positive that it's possible. I and mean, it might not be possible, but certainly it's worth trying. So this is a type of state of the art, or like at least it feels like it's something that we're trying that nobody else is trying. There might be a thousand people doing it, but at least if there's other thousand people doing it, they're doing it now. It's not like they did it 10 years ago. And that's kind of the feeling of the possibilities of this interdisciplinary use of these models. Once you understand what it is, once you have some intuition of like the Library of Babel or similar concept and you have some grasp of what it is and what it is not and what are the possibilities and then you understand that it's all on you to try to crack it, then you're there. You are at the forefront. Whoever has tried to do this is also trying to do it now together with you. And that's what's fascinating. So do you have any more practical example of what you can do with AI like in your everyday work? All of this prompt engineering business is only if you're trying it to do very complex things. But there is a lot of annoying things that almost anybody can do, but that we hate doing. Writing an email. Normally you would, oh, I wish I could just say what I want to say on that email. Like, I need this, I need that. But now I have to sit down, dear, blah, blah, blah. If it's somebody you don't know, you have to be polite. Maybe you're late with an email. And you're like, oh, I feel so sorry, but how do I say this? Apology for the late reply, but everybody says that. Well, you can just go to GPT, hey, I want to say to this person this, and I'm really late, 
and I like it to sound apologetic, but not too much, but also like I care and write it, please enter, boom. And then it would write the email and then you copy paste it and then you send that. That's an example. I'm not saying I'm doing that all the time. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not even delving into the ethical aspects of this, but it's one of the things that you can do and it might be helpful. Or reading a lot of things very quickly and summarizing it. You suddenly need to understand where to look. You have to summarize a lot of papers. This is something that recently has become possible. So another aspect of these models, which is kind of where the push to improving them is right now, is the context they can handle. GPT-2 was able to work with around 200 words, and that included your question and whatever output. So if you wanted to show a text and get a summary, all of that had to fit within hundreds of words. That wasn't so useful. And the model in itself wasn't great. GPT-3, which was one of the mind-blowing things that made me very surprised when I heard about it the first time, the context was 3,000 words. But that's already 10 pages. That's what made us think, oh, maybe you can start writing a film. Maybe you can at least tell you the story of a film. GPT-4, it's around 20,000, something like that. So it's on the tens of thousands of words. Now it becomes possible to feed it an article. You know, I gave it the full transcript of our podcast episodes. Give me the summary, the main points, a couple of interesting quotes, and write the podcast episode as a limerick. It did it. No problem. After reading like an hour of transcripts, and it could describe the guests, the messages, what it did, everything. It's not mind-blowing. Any reasonable adult could probably listen to the podcast and write the same and give it to you. But now you can have it automated. So there's that aspect, which should not be undervalued. It might free you up from all the not-so-deep work to allow you to have more time to go into your research and think deep about stuff. So to people thinking about how to use this in their interdisciplinary research, I say, well, it's as much about doing the deep, difficult stuff that humans do and only experts can do. It's as much about that as it is about lifting a lot of the weight you have in your shoulders for menial or what we call menial tasks that it would be able to do. And then you have to learn how to do this because you have to be careful. It's not always accurate. It's not always truthful. Sometimes he makes up things. Sometimes you might ask it for references. And I'll tell you why I say that. But I say, and of course, he doesn't give you real references. And you say, but why do you say of course? Well, if we go back to our conversation, we know now that it doesn't have access to data. It doesn't have access to bibliography. It cannot just go back. Like, can you, as a researcher, remember exactly the authors, the title, and the page number of the thing you're remembering you read in a paper two years ago? You can't. In the same way, these models can't do that either because they don't have a database where they can go look and find the paper and the title and everything in detail. They're remembering things. And they're not only remembering things about your specific area, they have a memory that includes almost everything on the internet, an imperfect memory. So once you understand that, it doesn't even make sense to ask it to write references. It's like if you would be walking in the street with a professor and I say, hey, here's a paper. Can you write me 10 references of this very specific subject with authors and titles? We have five minutes. You're never going to do that. But you might ask the professor, you know, this author and this author, what do they think about this concept? And then the professor would, oh, well, they think about by remembering what they have read in papers. That's the same way we have to interact with these models. So a lot of the problems people find are based on the conceptualization of what the models are. 
So once you have a more closer characterization of what the models are, you understand how to use them. And that is the closest I can come to say, here's what you can do with it. Well, it's a lot more about understanding what they are and then having your own ideas about what you can do with them. There's no list. Nobody has a list. Nobody's ever going to have a list. But you have to think of it not as a program, not as a human, but as a third thing, that it's neither. One of the things at universities that is being talked about a lot is, of course, the use of artificial intelligence and these chat GPTs in teaching, because many researchers also teach. And there is this subject, of course, that students will go and use these resources. And how do you do this then, especially regarding assignments and exams? What are your thoughts on this? How would you like to see your students <laughs> to use um, ChatGPT and how can you prevent cheating in exams? I feel like there's two camps in this discussion. On one hand, you have the people that see all the possible ways in which students are going to cheat and all the possible ways in which the current way of doing things is broken once you add the extra player of something like GPT or better. On the other hand, There's a camp of, well, we are now in a different world where AI exists in this way. What do we do now? I am more in this latter camp in the sense that rather than limiting or protecting or saving the way we do things, I think it's a very good moment to rethink how we do it. Not just because of artificial intelligence. There's many other reasons why I think we should rethink the way in which we teach our students and evaluate our students. I think this is a great motivation to trigger a rethinking. Let's assume for a second that my students can write essays with the touch of a button. What do I do now? A lot of the people are saying, okay, but maybe we can detect in some way. The answer is it's impossible because what these models do is that they try to sound like us. And even if you would have something that has, a, let's say, 90% probability of detecting, that means that 10% of the time they might be wrong. They might say to you that a student that actually wrote the essay wrote it with an AI. Let's say you have a room of 10 students and one has cheated, but your detection system has, let's say, a 20% false positive rate. That thing is going to tell you that two or more students cheated. What do you do? Are you going to punish The ones that you maybe are sure they did or not, you don't know. It's, it's just not going to work because you're never going to be able to do, well, let's not say never, but the things that people have tried to do are never 100% free of false positives. So forget about it. What I've seen from teachers in physics, there was a comment that, well, but now I'm just asking, designing my homework so that the students have to use AI. And that has a double effect. One, I don't have to care so much about cheating. Second, I'm teaching them how to use AIs. I'm teaching them how to write prompts. And this is going to be much more valuable than anything else you're teaching your students. And I mean it. There's nothing more important to understand right now than how to interface and interact with these artificial intelligences. So my answer would be rethink. Maybe I'm too optimistic. I'm obviously 
kind of bias. I'm a scientist, been programming for many years. I embrace technology. I don't think technology is a solution to everything, but I do think that the fact that we separate ourselves from technology is precisely the reason why we interface with technology sometimes in a negative way. At some point in human history, we decided to build a wall between this thing called technology and this thing called nature and humans. Arbitrary, because under a strict definition of what technology is, things like language are technology. And it's something that we didn't have for a long time. Like we've been on earth like two, 300,000 years. We only have language for like 60,000 of those 300,000 years. It was a technology we developed in some way that we still don't understand. Then we had writing. That's not that long ago. Then we have clothes. Then we have books, printing. But we don't put them on the other side of that. For us right now, technology is computers and silicon and so on. The fact that we have technology as this separate thing, where technology is about technology and humans are about humans, is arbitrary, artificial, and hindering considerations that might be important, even now with the AI. Treating the AI not just as a computer thing, but as a human thing, as an ethical thing, as a thing that has to do with nature, with what we are, having all of these considerations in the same box without a clear divide. It's never been, since the computers arrived, as easy to break that wall. Because right now, one of the frontiers, one of the parts of understanding what this is, lies squarely on the users that can be philosophers, historians, artists. And these are the people that are the best positioned to get that deep knowledge that we need to understand what this is and how to accept it and bring it into humanity in the best way. Can you tell us more about your work with the movie script? I had recently come out from a project with Stephen Follows, my collaborator, my partner in crime in all of this film creativity writing thing. He is a film producer. He has a company that makes films for nonprofits to do like campaigns, to get funds and stuff like that. But most importantly for this context, he's one, if not the only person, getting data about the film industry, analyzing it, and trying to communicate openly to people how the film industry works. He found me through a common friend that was a professor of astrostatistics when I was at Imperial. He connected us because he needed somebody to help him crunch some data he got from Netflix usage. Then I went in and helped him with that project as a consultant. And then, you know, we became friends also and started sharing interesting things because you know, in many ways we are very similar in many other ways. We come from very different worlds and are very different. So pretty good ground for a partnership. Then I find GPT-3 and the first thing I do is I ask it to write a film or the summary of a film. But then I ask it after it had written a film, okay, okay, but change the main character and make her meaner and write the first dialogue from the first scene. And then it did it. When I see this, that it took the film and then it changed the personality of the character and he rewrote the dialogue. I'm like, hey, Steven, look at this. I think we could write a film. Serendipitously, he was in New York talking to some people and he managed to have a connection with a Hollywood producer. And he showed them this. And uh, they said, okay, we're hiring both of you as a writer to write a film. And there we are with a Hollywood deal to write a film using this new thing. So we go hard at work. And of course, the first thing that we realized, and this might be relevant for the other things we've been talking about, the journey of like, it's not just saying, hey, write a film. 
and for context. How it works for any writer that wants to write a film is that you sign what's called a development deal that has different stages that get activated at different points. The first stage is called the treatment, where you have to hand in around 10 pages in whatever way that you want, where everything about the film is described. The characters, the plot, what's going to happen, what are the important moments. Some people like to write treatments where they go bit by bit of all the story. Some of the people like to write like a short story or a novel. Some people just write like kind of like a storyboard in words of everything that's going to happen. Whatever way, the only important thing is that everything about the film should be there. That's the first stage. They activated the first stage. We went, we produced this treatment. It wasn't wide a treatment for a film. It didn't really work that well because one of the things with these models is that they are what's called autoregressive, meaning that they only work with what's come before. They cannot see the end and go back to the beginning and rework. They cannot do these loops. That's one of the main kind of things these models cannot do yet very well. That's why they're terrible at writing jokes because to tell a joke, you have to know the punchline to set it up. So it's a prime example of this thing where you have to know the end to write the beginning. These models can write a 3D game that works, but they cannot tell you a joke. And it's not for something deep about like humor and whatever. No, it's simply because they cannot work backwards. It's as simple as that. We realize that you say write a film doesn't work. So what we ended up doing was something more like we took this GPT-3 that I could call from computer code that I would write in Python, and I could ask it to do things for me within that code, and then create loops where you say first, hey, GPT-3, you're not GPT-3 anymore. You're a wild writer that writes crazy things. And you have come up with your new wild original story. What is it? And then we got like a, some story like, it was a lady that was a cat and uh, she didn't realize it. And she was at work until she arrived. She was at something, you know, like that. Then we take that. And then we start another GPT-3 and say, hey, now you are an experienced Hollywood writer that has written many successful films and you have been given this crazy idea. Turn it into a more reasonable film. And then you take that to another Now you are a storyteller. Expand this into a story. Then another person would come in and say, why is this story bad? How can I improve it? Give me instructions. Give me 10 instructions on how to improve this. Then we got the 10 instructions. And we took those instructions and gave it back to GPT to use those instructions to improve the test. And so on and so forth in loops and blah, 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 until we got the 10 pages of the whole film. And that's how we did it. Interestingly, Our approach was not just to write a film or a treatment. It was to write it without us telling it anything about the story. So we never told it what the story was about, what needed to happen, what, you know, no quote-unquote creative input. I mean, admittedly, there's a lot of creativity in writing the code that does all of this, but not anything to do with a theme, whether it was a horror, whether it was a comedy, whether it was a thriller, nothing. So whatever we got out was created in some sense. So it was part of like why we wanted to do it. We wanted to see, is it possible? We got some results, we handed it in. And then the second step of this process is when the studio decides to make that film, they turn on the second stage, which is now you have to write the script, which is like 200 pages of dialogue and scenes and everything. Well, we handed in the first one, we got paid for it. They were very excited, but as we handed in, GPT-3 explodes, ChatGPT comes out, everybody's talking about AI. Suddenly, we don't look as cool as we used to look before. They are like excited, but we're waiting to hear from them and we don't know. And this is a, a place that a lot of writers find themselves into. Ultimately, they might call us back and say, okay, go write it. 
or they might never call us again, which is what Stephen refers as a Hollywood no, where they are very excited and say, we love you, it's great. And then they never call you back. We might be in that, I don't know yet. And then you also started the podcast. With that money that we got, we said, okay, let's make a podcast to tell this story, to discuss what this AI revolution is going to be when it comes to creativity and storytelling and writing films. And then we talked with a bunch of film writers and a bunch of AI experts to have discussions not dissimilar to the one we're having here. Is there anything you would like to add? So when it comes to using large language models like GPT-3 or its variants, we need to remember trust is a major issue. We cannot blindly rely on these models for accurate information or ethical behavior. When integrating them into research, it's important to always keep this in mind. So one important thing to understand is the difference between the base models and chat GPT. The base model is essentially the foundation, while chat GPT has additional frameworks built on top of it. That's why you can use GPT-4 or GPT-3 with chat GPT. In other words, the base model is the brain of the operation. What those base models do is a sort of guessing of what is the most likely next word given a text. ChatGPT turns the base model into a chat assistant and makes it more of an ethical and helpful entity. It even has something of a personality, which is quite fascinating. So the tour potential is the ability to create custom frameworks for different applications. Um, imagine connecting GPT-3 to a library of scientific articles or even the internet. You could also create complex processes like we did in our movie project where the base model assists itself. Designing these custom frameworks is going to be an important part of research. It's what I've been exploring at SCAS and plan to continue working on moving forward. It's about harnessing the power of a base model like GPT-3, adapting it to very specific goals and tasks, connecting it with other tools and ourselves. I do think that as we develop these frameworks, we must remain aware of the trust and ethical issues inherent in these models. In this last answer, you just heard an AI which was trained by Eliel, with the unedited sound file of this podcast episode. It was reading a text generated by ChatGPT4 and Eliel in collaboration. Thank you very much for being a guest on this podcast and talking to me and our listeners. Thank you for having me. It's super interesting, super great to be here. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In this episode, I've talked to Eliel Camargo Molina, researcher at the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Uppsala University and fellow within the Natural Sciences program here at SCAS during the academic year of 2022-2023. This was the first episode in our new theme, Artificial Intelligence, AI, and we talked about how AI can be a tool for scientific research in particular within interdisciplinary projects. This episode was recorded at the end of March 2023 and the thoughts and reflections on AI reflect the state of the technology at this point. Elia Camago-Molina is the co-host of the podcast Authored by AI together with Stephen Fellows. Listen if you want to learn more about their journey into AI-generated film scripts using ChatGPT. If you want to know more about Eliel Komago Malina's research, you can tune into the YouTube channel of Uppsala University and watch his talk in the series UpTalk Weekly. The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing with a broad variety of topics, a reflection of the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. We're sure that SCAS Talks is a podcast with something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something new. 
As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCAS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Eliel Camargo Molina once again for talking to me. And thanks to you for listening. Bye for now. Bye.